Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity's true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Theistic evolution. What is it? And if it's true, exactly where does God intervene? What do the proponents of theistic evolution say? Is this kind of a halfway house between naturalism slash atheism and intelligent design? And what about theistic theistic evolution in the Bible? Does it contradict what the Bible says? Well, there's no better person on the planet to talk about this than my friend, Dr. Stephen Meyer, who's been on the program several times before. Steve has his Ph.D. in the philosophy of science from the University of Cambridge. And, of course, he's the director of the Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture. He's written several great books, New York Times bestselling books, including Signature in the Cell and Darwin's Doubt. And he's a major contributor to the brand new – well, it's about a year old now – this new book called Theistic Evolution, a Scientific, Philosophical, and Theological Critique. This book is nearly a 1,000 pages, ladies and gentlemen, but it is readable, and it has some wonderful information in it. He's joined forces with uh, people. People you may have heard of, like J.P. Moreland and Wayne Grudem and others, to bring this together. So it's great having Steve on the on the show with us again. Steve, how are you? I'm doing really well, and it's been it's been too long. I'm glad we're talking, Frank. This yeah, is I know, man. You you got to be on more because there's nobody better at boiling down these complex subjects regarding biology and evolution than you. In fact, I want to encourage our audience to go back and listen to two. Uh, discussions we had on these topics. In fact, uh, if you get the cross-examined app, two words in the app store, cross-examined, go back and listen to uh, the January 2017 conversation we have called Royal Problems with Evolution. We'll revisit that here in this uh, discussion. And then then go back to September 2014 and look at five problems with macroevolution. That was sort of a summary of Steve's uh, book called Darwin's Doubt. Go back and listen to those. Those are evergreen shows. They're not dated shows. They have great information in them. Now, Steve, I want to I want to start out, if we could, by just kind of getting a little bit of an update, because the last conversation we had about two and a half years ago, you had just returned from an event that occurred over in England, the Royal Society event, where you had people coming together who are evolutionists saying, look, the current theory of macroevolution, neo-Darwinism doesn't work. What developments have occurred since that time? Well, quite a few that are in the exact same train. Uh, they, you may recall that uh, the the opening talk at that conference at really uh, the, arguably the most august scientific body in the world, in mm-hmm. November 2016, was uh, shared by an evolutionary biologist named Gerd Müller from Austria. And he kicked off the conference by enumerating the what he called the explanatory deficits of neo-Darwinism, one of which was the its inability to explain the complexity of organisms, what he called the phenotypic complexity. Uh, secondly, was the the problem of morphological innovation. He acknowledged that mutation and natural selection do a decent job of explaining small-scale variation, 
but they do not explain the major innovations in biological form that have occurred in the fossil record throughout the history of life. And that led to a third major problem was that the, the abrupt appearance mm. of major new forms of life in the fossil record, not the gradual step-by-step uh, kind of appearance we'd expect on a Darwinian model. So those were just three of, I think he had five major problems that he enumerated right out of the chute. And the conference was kind of framed by that talk. Now, since then, as you might expect, given the kind of ferment that's going on in evolutionary biology and the recognition, the increasing recognition of an impasse in the field with respect to its ability to explain the large scale morphological, that is changes in form that we see in the history of life, you would, there, there have been other um, defections from the, the standard theory. Um, we've had a number of people, a number of people now working with us at Discovery Institute who are quite prominent, who are former um, <clears throat> proponents of the mainstream theory. One is the paleontologist Gunter Beckley from uh, from Germany, who has uh, who was uh, for, until recently uh, one of the lead curators at the largest natural history museum. In, the, in Europe, uh, the Stuttgart Museum of Natural History. Uh, Gunter announced, um, in fact, shortly before that uh, conference in, in 2016, that he was uh, had, had come to accept the theory of intelligent design. And after a couple of years of haggling and negotiating with the, the museum, uh, he accepted a buyout. They made it clear they didn't want him there anymore if that wow. was his point of view. Wow. But uh, he's now working full time with the Discovery Institute, and he's heading up a German uh, institute called the, the the German Center for Biocomplexity and Natural Teleology, which is the study of purpose and nature. Hmm. So uh, this is, you know, kind of uh, a major story. Uh, and uh, he, he's a, a big player in and has been a big player in evolutionary biology and paleontology. And he's He's come out explicitly for the theory of intelligent design and is working with us. Another another similar story. Um, uh, earlier this year, there was a, a, a review of my book, Darwin's Doubt, published in the Claremont Review of Books. It was an extensive six-page review and a big broadsheet publication written by the Yale computer scientist, uh, David Galarenter. Yes. And people good, who good are review. familiar with computer science know what a big figure he is. He was a inventor of parallel processing and Java code. And uh, he's also a, a brilliant polymath who's written books on the philosophy of mind, on politics and economics. He's been a frequent contributor to publications like the Wall Street Journal, Commentary, The Weekly Standard, you name it. And, and uh, anyway, he came out with an extraordinary review of Darwin's Doubt in which he also uh, uh, had some favorable comments for uh, David Berlinski's book, The Deniable Darwin. And he said that these two books had convinced him to give up on Darwinism. Hmm. And uh, he, he explained his reasons in some depth. He cited the work of, uh, for example, Douglas Axe, our colleague who's established uh, what, what is known as the extreme rarity of proteins in uh, what's called sequence space. That's just another way of saying that it's incredibly improbable that mutation and selection would, uh, by uh, the, the, that process of undirected, um, uh, that that an undirected search by mutation and selection would would be able to find the incredibly rare arrangements of amino acids that form into the proteins that make all life possible, and that's that's a, a huge a huge mathematical argument against against Darwinian theory. So. Um, 
Galerinter explained this argument and explained that it had persuaded him as well as uh, the other arguments that had persuaded him to give up on Darwin. He also indicated he's not quite there yet on intelligent design. He's intrigued with it. He thinks it's a serious scientific argument, but um, he has some theological things he's thinking through. So he's not ready to embrace intelligent design, but he's rejected Darwinism. So uh, the, these are the kinds of things that are going on. And yet, at, just at the point that you have the secular evolutionary biologists and then many other scientists beginning to question Darwinian evolution, you have this push within the Christian church to uh, endorse or even sort of baptize the Darwinian account <laughs> of biological origins, saying that if we don't accept this, we're scientifically backwards and we'll bring intellectual disrepute to the church. So you have this kind of strange juxtaposition of secular evolutionary biologists and leading scientists in various fields rejecting the mainstream theory and uh, a well funded effort within the Christian church to get Christians to accept Darwinian evolution or the modern form of it called neo-Darwinism, lest we fall behind the times and be uh, not, <laughs> not, not, not on top of science. So it's, it's crazy what's going on. And that's why this new book that you have put together with a bunch of other scholars called Theistic Evolution, a scientific, philosophical and theological critique is so essential because it covers the waterfront, Steve. You guys have done a wonderful job here. And when we come back from the break, we're going to talk about the theistic evolutionary theory. What is it? Uh, are, are, does it comport with the Bible at all? Does it comport with the evidence at all? Uh, and what are Christians to make of it? Well, you're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek here on the American Family Radio Network. My guest today is Dr. Stephen Meyer of the Discovery Institute, discovery.org. Great material up there. Go check that out. And when we come back, we're going to dive into this new tome, Theistic Evolution, so you don't want to miss that. Do not go anywhere. Ladies and gentlemen, can you help me with something? Can you help me get this podcast before more people? Not only tell your friends about it, but go up to iTunes and put a five-star review on the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast. If you do that, it will help us move the podcast up the charts so more people will hear it. Thank you so much for partnering with me on this. If you're low on the FM dial looking for NPR, go no further. We're actually going to tell you the truth here. That's our intent anyway. I guarantee you, you're not going to hear Stephen Meyer on NPR. We're talking to my friend, Dr. Stephen Meyer. His brand new, well, year or so old book written with several others is called Theistic Evolution, a scientific, philosophical and theological critique. It is a wealth of information on this topic. And before we go any further, I got to mention that tomorrow, if you're listening to this on Saturday, I'll be at Quail Lakes Baptist Church in Stockton, California in the morning and an evening uh, service, uh, really a presentation with Q&A at 6.30. We'll be talking about If God, Why Evil. Then Monday night, Univers University of the Pacific. Tuesday night, Fresno State. Hope to see you out there. And then next weekend, I'll be in Tucson at Calvary Tucson. All the services, Sunday night event again. And then on Monday night, I want to say that's uh, I want to say that's the 7th of October. I have to look at the calendar. Uh, that is the University of Arizona for I 
don't have enough faith to be an atheist. So I hope to see you out there. And then the following weekend, my guest today, Dr. Stephen Meyer, will join me and many others here in Charlotte, North Carolina, for the National Conference on Christian Apologetics. So you don't want to miss that. If you're anywhere near Charlotte, that's where you want to be, anywhere on the East Coast. Check uh, ses.edu. That's Southern Evangelical Seminary's website, ses.edu, and click on NCCA. You'll see the conference there. You can still join. It's going to be a wonderful apologetics conference, so you don't want to miss that. Now, back to my friend Stephen Meyer. Steve, this book on theistic evolution, um, in your previous books, you were talking more about the reasons that macroevolution has is not that doesn't appear to be viable. There's so much evidence against it. You weren't saying it's because it contradicts the Bible, but in this particular tome, you have articles that do both that deal with the reasons that macroevolution does not appear to be correct. And the idea that macroevolution or even theistic evolution comports with the Bible is, is, is not right. And, and that's what this book does. Um, how did you guys go about putting this together? Cause this is a vast tome. I mean, you are covering a lot of ground here. Right. Well, I was principally involved in editing the scientific and philosophical sections of the book in which we mm -hmm. challenged the notion of theistic evolution on scientific grounds and challenged the underlying philosophical assumptions that theistic evolutionists affirm that uh, lead to their embrace of the evolutionary approach to biological origins. Then in the final section, uh, Wayne Grudem uh, edited a uh, section of theological articles critiquing the uh, uh, theistic evolution from the standpoint of a biblical and theological perspective. So mm -hmm. showing that there's a tension between Orthodox uh, Christianity and uh, and and uh, affirming the different notions of theistic evolution. The, the, one of the problems is, of course, is that there's so many different ideas of theistic evolution because there's so many different ways you can define the term evolution. And so, what we did in the in what I did in an opening uh, scientific and philosophical introduction was to define the different meanings of the term theistic evolution and specifically focus on those meanings that we found either scientific scientifically, philosophically, or theologically problematic. Uh, there are meanings of theistic evolution that are innocuous, like the idea that there's change over time in the history of life mm -hmm. and that God has caused that change. That's not a, a that's not, neither scientifically nor theologically problematic, but um, <clears throat> the idea that there's an undirected, unguided process of biological change produced by the mechanism of mutation and selection and that that process explains away the appearance of design and yet somehow god is uh involved with that uh that's both scientifically and philosophically problematic and then wayne grudem and his team of authors also said it doesn't comport very well with a biblical understanding of where we came from so uh, so uh, a key thing we did early on was sort of define the 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 terms and define the position that we were critiquing it happens to be the position that's kind of the dominant way of thinking in for example the christian college biology departments hmm. well this is interesting i just read your chapter the first chapter of the book and as steve just said the chapter is called scientific and philosophical introduction defining theistic evolution now our friend greg kokel has a tactic when somebody says something to you you, sh you should ask them what do you mean by that if there is some ambiguity as to what they mean so i've been asked on a college campus i know you've been asked much more than i have uh, do you believe in evolution? And you should always stop and ask the question, what do you mean by the term evolution? And Steve, in this opening chapter, you go through the different 
the different definitions of evolution. And as you said, the first definition you go through, change over time, not problematic for anybody. But what about the second definition? How, what is the second definition that is often used? Yeah, the, fir the first definition is change over time, and that can refer to uh, small-scale variations in, for example, the coloration of the, the wings of peppered moths or in the shape mm -hmm. and size of finch beaks, that kind of stuff that we all learn in biology class. It can also re refer to the fact that there are different creatures living on the planet today than uh, those that were preserved in the fossil records so that we see sure. that there's been change over the history of life. Nobody disputes any of that. The second meaning, however, is the idea that the change that we observe in the history of life is continuous and gradual, such that the pic the best picture of the history of life is uh, what Darwin called the idea of universal common descent, that the, the, the idea that the, the history of life can be best depicted as a great branching tree, starting from one single root or, or trunk, branching out into all the different forms of life we see today that would be represented by all the branches on the tree. So it's a, a picture of continuous biological change from a single common ancestor a very long time ago. Now, that's, that's, that's a, a definition of evolution that could be merged with some meaningful form of theism, but we show that it is definitely a problematic view with respect to the biological evidence, and it's also problematic with respect to a, uh, a straightforward reading of the biblical text. So um, that's, that's evolution number two. Evolution number three is the really problematic uh, meaning of the term, the idea that, that natural selection and random mutation has creative power and in fact, the, the creative power of that mechanism is such that not only does it account for all the new forms of life that we see arising in the history of life as documented in the fossil record, but that the mutation selection mechanism being an, an entirely undirected mechanism can explain away the appearance of design that all biologists recognize in living organisms. So the third meaning of evolution is, affirms the creative power of mutation and selection and its ability to explain all forms of, of new forms of life as well as the appearance of design that they manifest. Now, Steve, proponents of theistic evolution, where do they say God has actually intervened, or do they, well, or don't they? Well, that's one of the questions we've been asking them. We have, yeah, I mean, this is a big book <laughs> critiquing the, the position or positions of theistic evolution. Mm -hmm. But in conversations publicly with folks that hold that kind of a view, we've mainly been asking them for clarification. Right. Uh, I was in a conversation, uh, private conversation, about 10 years ago with one of the leading figures in the a theistic evolution uh, uh, world, and uh, I was in this conversation with our uh, a young uh, scholar of ours who was at the time our our Washington D.C. office uh, uh, manager, and with a friend of his who was working for this other prominent theistic evolutionist, and mm -hmm. they got together and said, "Look, your your boss says." Uh, well, I, actually, I'd give it away by telling the, the, the book titles, but they seem to be so similar that the two of these young guys said, well, how, how, why, why do our two bosses disagree? So they got us together to talk. And during the, the conversation, our young uh, D.C. office director said to this very prominent person, uh, well, uh, Dr. So-and-so, you say you're a theistic evolutionist, but what do you mean by evolution? What do you think that God is doing? Is evolution a directed 
or an undirected process. Mm -hmm. And this very prominent scientist paused rather long time. And then there was a kind of halting response in which he said, well, it, it might be directed. And I took that to be an entirely political answer because the theistic evolutionists through organizations like BioLogos and many others are attempting to get, first and foremost, the Christian church to adopt an evolutionary account of the origin of life and the origin of human life. In other words, they want us to embrace the Darwinian perspective within the church. But uh, if they say that the theory of, uh, if they say mutation and selection, the driving mechanism of evolutionary change is undirected, most pastors and seminary professors and Christian leaders worth their salt are going to say, that sounds an awful lot like, well, if not deism, something kind of similar. Uh, mm -hmm. it, mean, it at least means that God hasn't had much to do with anything. It, uh, it would be in theological terms a view that denies, uh, it would, it would affirm a uh, reduced role uh, for divine sovereignty over the uh, the production mm -hmm. of life. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if they say that the mechanism is directed, well, that breaks, first of all, with this, the, the standard understanding of mutation and natural selection. Um, it breaks with the standard scientific understanding and the, and the authority of the scientific community that they're, uh, that they're invoking. And secondly, it is actually a form of intelligent design, not the form that I hold, but a form where if it's a directed process, that means a designing agent is, is directing the evolutionary process towards some propitious endpoint or endpoints. Mm -hmm. So, but the theistic evolutionists have been critical of intelligent design. So asking that question kind of puts them on the horns of dilemmas, a directed or undirected, they don't want to say, but yet for the theory to have any import at all, it must have some specific content, empirical content. It mm -hmm. must answer questions like that. Mm -hmm. So we, we've kind of been asking for clarification on this. And in the absence of such clarification, what we do in the book is kind of lay out the different possible answers that the theistic evolutionists could give and show that in each case, they're either scientifically, philosophically, or theologically problematic. And often they're, they're all three. Yes, and that's what your first chapter lays out quite well. Uh, but Steve, if they're not saying it's directed at all, in what sense could it be theistic? I mean, theistic implies that God is somehow involved. Why not just take theistic off there and you're back to the neo-Darwinian naturalistic view? Uh, I have nothing to add to that rhetorical question, except that's exactly the right question to be asking. So, yeah. I don't, I don't get this. I don't. In other words, have... what is God? What is God doing in this? Yeah. In this synthesis of theism and a completely naturalistic, undirected theory of the evolution of life. Well, let's unpack the answer it further. Is no one's been. They've been loath to say. If you ask they, them, is he directing? The evolutionary uh -huh. process, or is he directing the mutations toward a profi pro some propitious endpoint? They'll uh -huh. s usually say no, or they'll s or they will get uh, perilously vague and say, "Well, well, maybe." <laughs> so, that, <laughs> it, it, so it, it's it's either not a theistic theory, or it's so perilously vague that it's not a theory at all. All right. Well, we're coming back to talk to Stephen Meyer some more. The new book, Theistic Evolution, you need to get. I'm Frank Turk. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. We're back in two. 
If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Join our online community to have great conversations, grow in your knowledge of God, and become a better defender of the Christian faith. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where we have hundreds of videos and over 100,000 subscribers that are part of our online family. Find us by searching for Frank Turek or cross-examine in the search bar. You can find many more resources like articles, online courses, free downloadable materials, event calendars, and more at crossexamined.org. So trying to get a theistic evolutionist to tell us exactly where God intervenes in the process is like trying to nail jello to the wall, apparently. And that's what you'll learn when you read Theistic Evolution, a scientific, philosophical, and theological critique edited by my friend, Dr. Stephen Meyer, who not only edited, he, re- he wrote about four or five chapters in here. J.P. Moreland's involved as well. So is Wayne Grudem and several others. Uh, an amazing tome you need to get. It's got sections in here on, on science, obviously, on philosophy, and on theology as well. So a wonderful book. Now, Steve, um, there is something you talk about at quite length in the book called methodological naturalism. Can you explain what that is to our audience? Well, methodological naturalism is the uh, idea that if you're going to be a scientist, you have to limit yourself to strictly naturalistic or materialistic explanations for everything. Mm. And that sounds sensible on the surface because a lot of what scientists do is describe how one part of nature interacts with another. And for those sorts of descriptions or uh, theories that we develop about those kind of interactions, there's really no need to posit uh, anything other than nature at work. Um, if we want to understand how water erodes rocks, we don't need to talk about um, the God hypothesis, mm-hmm. uh, nor do we, for that matter, need to talk about the evolution of the planet. We're just talking about a process that we can observe in front of our eyes. But much of science, but and that much of science occupies describing those kinds of processes. But science has also taken on these questions of origins and also questions of human nature. So if you want to ask a question about, for example, the nature of the human mind and whether or not we can explain human behavior and human thought solely as the result of the uh, neurophysiological processes in the brain, well, that's a, that's a question that has a philosophical dimension that does should not um, be, uh, and, and as such, our answers to that question should not only consider strictly materialistic answers. It might be that the brain and the mind are not the same thing and that humans have something like a soul or an immaterial mind that is using the brain as an organ of thought. And in fact, many neurophysiologists think that, but that's Hmm. not uh, obeying the law of methodological naturalism because it says we can only talk about materialistic processes. So if you think consciousness is something more than chemistry, you're, you're going to run afoul the principle of methodological naturalism. Similarly, in the debate about biological origins, there's two possible causal explanations. One is, in, in broad terms, that everything that we see arose through, the, through undirected material processes, some 
form of undirected evolutionary change. Another idea that's been held all the way back to the ancient Greeks is that there was a mind that was shaping the material processes, that there was some kind of intelligent design. Now, if you hold a methodological naturalism, you're going to exclude the design hypothesis by definition. You're not even going to consider it, whatever the evidence is. Right. But it might be the case that we have encountered certain kinds of evidences in biological systems that would, in any other context, lead us to conclude design. For example, one of the things we've discovered at the Foundation of Life, which I've written about in a couple of different books, is the digital code stored in the DNA. We know that digital code software always comes from a programmer. And so it, we might be tempted to consider the possibility that the information stored in DNA in a digital form is actually evidence of a master programmer for life. It would be like walking into the, the, uh, the British Museum, looking at the Rosetta Stone and saying, well, where did, where did all those interesting inscriptions come from? If we're holding to methodological naturalism, we're going to have to say, well, something like wind and erosion or some other mm -hmm. materialistic process, even though we know from experience that information of the kind inscribed on the Rosetta Stone always comes from a mind. So the problem with methodological naturalism is that it keeps us from following the evidence to wherever it leads, especially when we're looking at questions about origins or questions about the nature of the human mind, questions that have both a scientific and philosophical dimension to them. And the law of methodological naturalism did not come from a natural cause. It was a philosophical principle imposed on science by a mind. So it doesn't even explain well, itself. Absolutely. <laughs> well, well said. Well said. Um, and, the, and relevant to our current discussion is that mm -hmm. all theistic evolutionists accept this rule. They often mm. don't tell you that, but when you probe them, you find that they do. In fact, when my book, Darwin's Doubt, was referred at the Biologos website, the biologists objected to the argument of the book, not based on the, uh, the biological or paleontological evidence I uh, presented. In fact, Daryl Falk, one of the biological reviewers, said that I was correct, that not only the neo-Darwinian view of evolutionary theory, but more current views failed to account for the origin of the major innovations we see in the history of life and that the mechanisms that they cited lacked the creative power to account for the origin of novel biological forms. But he said he was committed to a strictly naturalistic approach to science and therefore he couldn't consider the intelligent design hypothesis and he critiqued me for not embracing this, this definition of science that had led him to limit the scope of his inquiries. But again, Steve, and I'm preaching to the choir, this is for the audience. If this guy is claiming to be a theistic evolutionist, but he philosophically rules out theism as being involved in the process, in what sense is he a theistic evolutionist? <laughs> well, he just, but yeah, well, that's, that's a really astute question. And I, I think you're pretty good at asking questions like this. That's a, <laughs> well, so are you. It's, it's all through the book, the theistic evolution the, the, book the, we're talking about. Yeah, but it's, uh, but for them, what, what they mean, so what, what, what this boils down to is that they believe the standard evolutionary account to the extent that they can affirm it. And in Daryl Falk's case, uh, he honestly acknowledges the, the, uh, uh, the explanatory deficits of neo-Darwinism, like the, the mainstream secular evolutionary biologists are increasingly doing. But he is committed to some kind of naturalistic evolutionary account of biological origins, mm -hmm. even if an adequate one does not yet exist. And well, we, 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 he believes in God. And he believes well, we, in God. <laughs> so those two things make theistic evolution theistic evolution. Oh, that's it. But, he believes but he in God. he is not okay. willing to say 
that God is doing anything that is detectable uh, scientifically or empirically. Well, we, we, we have to deal with this, Steve, because it always comes up and, and you deal with it so well. They're going to say, OK, Steve, Dr. Meyer, we understand there are problems with the neo-Darwinian theory. That's why the Royal Society gets together and discusses these things. That's why you just had a meeting in Israel with other secular and religious scientists who are saying, hey, yeah, we got problems with macroevolution. But just to say you have problems with a naturalistic um, set of processes doesn't necessarily mean that a a, a theological or a uh, a theistic view is correct. I mean, is that not just a God of the gaps argument, Steve? You're just plugging God in the gap of your knowledge. How do you respond? Well, the theory of intelligent design infers the action of a mind of some kind. And it does so not because of a gap in our knowledge, not because of what we don't know, but because of what we do know about, for example, the causes of the origin of functional information, especially the kind of information that we find in software or in written languages, or for that matter, in the DNA molecule. This is the argument that I made in Signature in the Cell. Mm -hmm. Whenever we see information and we trace it back to its source, whether we're talking about a hieroglyphic inscription or a paragraph in a book or a section of software in a, in a computer program, invariably we come to a mind, not just a material process. So the discovery of, the, of information in the, at the foundation of life, I've argued, is best explained as the result of the activity of a mind. That's an inference based on what we know about the DNA molecule and based on what we know about the causes or cause of information generally. So it's not an argument from ignorance. It's not an argument based on a gap in our knowledge, but it's based on the knowledge that we have, the best knowledge that we have. And all science is based on the best knowledge that we have. We, mm -hmm. may, get more, we may get additional knowledge down the road, but we, we, do, we, we wouldn't say, for example, if uh, the archaeologists who discovered the Rosetta Stone inferred that a, a, an intelligent scribe had written those uh, the, the, those markings on the rock, we wouldn't say that that scribe was guilty of a scribe of the gaps argument mm -hmm. uh, because this, the, the archaeologist was making a reasonable inference based on the knowledge that we have both about the, the stone and about the, our uh, processes of cause and effect that we observe in the world. And the key process we're talking about here is that it takes a mind to generate information. So this isn't a God of the gaps argument. It's an inference to the best explanation based on our knowledge of cause and effect and based on the features of biological systems. Well said. In fact, I think the evolutionists are engaged in a natural law of the gaps argument because there are no known natural forces or combination thereof that can create biologically complex information that you talk about in signature in the cell. In the cell, they just haven't found that let law yet, according to them. And so, I think they're engaged in the same kind of gap argument, except it's a it's a it's really a a uh, objection. Well, it's a natural. I think. Yeah. Go, no, go ahead. Go ahead, Steve. Well, it's a naturalism of the gaps. This is what yeah. methodological naturalism is all about. It says That's even right. if we don't have an adequate naturalistic explanation, we're going to hold out for one at all costs. Exactly. We're going to hold on to. Yeah. Uh, we're going to say that there is one, even though there is a gap in our knowledge. So uh, we—that is to say, a gap in our knowledge of what natural processes can do. We're just going to assume that there is such a an answer. So really, the shoes on the other foot. This is a form of projection where the mm -hmm. materialists who 
are hidebound to a a priori assumption that governs all their thinking about the subject are accusing people who are following the evidence where it leads of being uh, of, of, of having a prior theological assumption that's leading them, at, them to that conclusion. It's actually the methodological naturalists or the, the theistic evolutionists or the evolutionists in this case that are so committed to a materialistic worldview that they're not willing to consider any alternative explanation for the origin of life. It is a dogmatic faith position is what it is. That's what they're engaged yeah, in. Ironically, they're the but ones- But it masquerades as science. That's and this right. is a it, great question that, that Philip Johnson used to ask. When yes. It, he said, it's a question of the definition of science. By science, do we mean an empirically based inquiry that allows us to follow the evidence where it leads? Or do we mean a commitment to a materialistic answer, whatever the evidence is that we encounter? And part of what we've been doing in the in the intelligent design research community is challenging our colleagues in the broader scientific community to change their understanding of science back to a more open-ended, a science that's, that embraces a more open-ended inquiry rather than a science that is committed to a certain kind mm-hmm. of answer, whatever the evidence says. This is why I've said before on this program, ladies and gentlemen, that science doesn't say anything scientists do. And too many of the scientists that consider themselves macroevolutionist naturalists are basically following their atheistic philosophy because they've already ruled out intelligent causes before they look at the evidence. So is it any wonder they're always going to say it has to be some sort of natural cause? Even if we haven't found it yet, we have faith we will find it. That's naturalism of the gaps. We're back in just a couple of minutes. My guest is Dr. Stephen Meyer of the Discovery Institute. His brand new book, Theistic Evolution, a Scientific, Philosophical, and Theological Critique. We're back with our final segment. I'm Frank Turek. Don't go away. Ladies and gentlemen, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist is a listener-supported radio program and podcast. If you like what we do, would you please consider going to crossexamined.org and giving us a tax-deductible donation. 100% of your donations will go to ministry, 0% to buildings. Thanks so much. Can't waste a second of time with my friend, Dr. Stephen Meyer. He is brilliant on this topic, as he is on many topics. Theistic evolution, a scientific, philosophical, and theological critique. Before we get back into that, Steve, I got a couple of questions that have been asked of me that I'd like to bounce off you. One question deals with the simple to complex life forms that we find in the fossil record. From a biblical perspective, how do we explain the fact that it does appear that the the geological strata goes from simple to complex? Well, let me just uh, address that from the standpoint of uh, both evolutionary theory and the theory of intelligent design. The Mm -hmm. progression, uh, this is one of Darwin's five arguments for um, universal common ancestry. Uh, There is a a general progression from simple to complex, but there are many exceptions to that as you go up and down the sedimentary rock column. And the more striking pattern, and this is the one that's that's really difficult to explain, is that you have multiple abrupt appearances of major new forms of life, where uh, each new form uh, exhibits a, a, an integrated complexity that's distinct from forms that arose before. So I've written a whole book about what's called the Cambrian Explosion, which is the mm-hmm. uh, event in the history of life in which the majority of the new forms of animal life first arise, and and quite abruptly. 
But in the book, uh, the theistic evolution book that we've been discussing, uh, Gunter Beckley, the paleontologist that I mentioned in the earlier segment, and I have co-authored an article about not just the Cambrian explosion, but about uh, um, uh, uh, 17, uh, 16 other major abrupt appearances of new forms of life, starting from the origin of the first life, looking at the origin of animals, the origin of flowering plants, the origin of the first mammals, the first winged insects and birds. Most of the major groups of, of, of uh, plants and animals in the history of life arise very abruptly and discreetly in the fossil record, not in the gradual uh, sort of um, pattern that you'd expect on a Darwinian point of view. So if you, going back to your question about a biblical point of view, if you look at the Genesis account, you get the sense that there is a progression of new forms of life that are, are being created by God over time. Some people think it's a very compressed time scale. Others think it's a very long time scale. But setting that aside, uh, what you would expect is a, a kind of a progression of created forms. And that happens to be exactly what we see in the fossil mm -hmm. record, where these new forms arise quite abruptly and not in the sort of gradual step-by-step -step way we'd expect on a Darwinian tree of life pattern uh, and, uh, uh, that, um, that, that has long been accepted in evolutionary theory. In fact, I've seen one of the best videos ever done on this topic you helped put together. It's called Darwin's Dilemma, and I think it's actually on YouTube now. Uh, friends, if you haven't seen Darwin's Dilemma, this is all explained very well in that video with all sorts of uh, graphics and videos. In fact, I remember Jonathan Wells, one of your colleagues, uh, Stephen, saying that if he had a botanical illustration to give regarding the history of life, it would not be a tree. It would be a lawn that things just kind of came up individually. Would you agree with him on that? Uh, yeah, lawn's pretty good. Even better would be an orchard of separate trees because there okay. is variability within limits within each group. But the uh -huh. trees don't all marry up into one big tree. Instead, uh -huh. you have a you know, this kind of orchard-like picture where you, except that the, the, the trees are ari arising uh, up and down the rock column, if you will, so that you have this these disconnected Mm -hmm. um, sometimes the, the paleontologists call them punctuations or radiations sure. or just explosions. I, I always used to tell my students, you will know them by their euphemisms. And uh, <laughs> there's a lot of euphemisms in paleontology to get around this pattern, this overwhelming pattern of abrupt appearance. And, uh, and for the most part, what they call stasis or changelessness, the, the mm. basic form of organisms once introduced into the fossil record doesn't change, although there's variations on basic themes. Now, the second question that, that I've gotten recently is the question regarding the dating, the, the pre-Cambrian or the, the Cambrian explosion 500 and something million years ago. Is it sedimentation rate that gives them this, these dates? Or how do they date these different layers or these different eras or these different explosions? In fact, that was interesting. I did read the chapter, all these different explosions. As you said, it's not just the Cambrian explosion. There's all these other explosions yeah, that we, go we, on. Yeah, we documented 17 total yeah, and there were more we could have talked about so, it's amazing yeah. well um yeah the, the the dates are typically the dates that give us those those numbers in millions of years are typically rendered using radiometric methods where we uh measure the rate the known rates of radiometric decay of certain uh 
isotopes, potassium, okay. argon, for example. Um, in the case of the Cambrian explosion, it was really interesting. For quite a long time, it was dated to be about an 80 million year event in the history of life. Then there was this major discovery of Cambrian era fossils in China. And the window of uh, the explosion narrowed dramatically. Uh, in uh, Darwin's Doubt, I show that uh, there are a couple dozen of these new animal phyla, the major groups of organisms that uh, ex exemplify the different body plants, as they're called. But in one narrow seam of rock that's been dated at no more than uh, five to six million years, there are 13 to 16 different phyla that first emerge in that period of time. Now, that's an, that, that's a, uh, that sounds like a lot of time, but that's not only geologically abrupt, it's biologically abrupt. There's this problem in evolutionary theory known as the waiting times problem, where if you know the population size, the generation time, and the mutation rate, you can compute about how much evolutionary change should take place in a given amount of time, or um, <clears throat> how much time it would take to generate a given amount of evolutionary change. Mm -hmm. And it taking, just looking at a very small amount of evolutionary change, like the, the amount of time needed to produce two coordinated mutations in the, in the uh, hominid line or the whale line, er, the, those, those calculations are rendering uh, numbers in the hundreds of millions of years or tens of millions of years for just two coordinated mutations. Well, if you get 13 to 16 new animal phyla arising in a 5 million year window, uh, there's not nearly enough time by Darwinian forget processes to produce yeah. that. Forget, yeah, it, forget, forget about, about it. Forget about it. It's not happening, yeah. right? <laughs> it's not happening. So this is just one more reason why the the uh, there are explanatory deficits in the neo-Darwinian uh, scheme of things. The neo-Darwinian math that flows out of these these analyses is showing that the neo-Darwinian mechanism is not sufficient. Ladies and gentlemen, this is one of the reasons why you have secular scientists now doubting Darwinism. Because of this, the kind of work that Stephen Meyer has done and, and Doug Axe has done and many other people at Discovery Institute. So it's not the right time for the church to start adopting Darwinism when the secular world is realizing Darwinism doesn't work. And we could spend a lot of time talking about why it doesn't work. We've done that in previous, previous broadcasts. Go back and listen to the September 2014 edition of this program called Five Problems with Macroevolution. Also go back and listen to Five Royal Problems with Evolution from January 2017. You got to get the cross-examined app, two words in the app store, cross-examined to access those. Dr. Stephen Meyer was my guest for both of those. Dr. Doug X was a, also a guest on one of those. But Steve, before we go, uh, I want to talk a little bit about your new book because you have a new book coming out here in about six months. And you know, about 10 or 12 years ago, you did this great series with Focus on the Family where you basically went through all the evidence or much of the evidence that Christianity is true. Um, and uh, it was a, a video series. I can't remember. What did, what did you call that? I can't remember what it was. It was, it was called great... True You with a big U. For, That's it. Like, True You, University. man. Yeah. That was yeah. great. And you did it in this classroom and, and you acted out all the parts. You were Einstein at one part and you were, you know, uh, Hubble at I, another I was part. being my goofy college <laughs> professor self again. Yeah, That's it was right. kind of fun. That's yeah. right. Now, now, how does this new book, this design hypothesis, is this dealing just with theism or are you going into Christianity as well? No, it's a case for theism based on an ensemble of scientific evidences that three big discoveries that reveal the mind behind the universe is the likely subtitle for the book. All right. And uh, I call, I've called this for years the return of the God hypothesis. The, uh -huh. and, and it tells the story first of the influence of Judeo-Christian worldview on the rise of modern science during the period known as the scientific revolution, mm -hmm. roughly 
1500 to 1700. And then how during the 19th century, a more materialistic understanding of the natural world uh, arose as a result of theories like Darwin's theory of evolution. And then in, but the majority of the book then tells the story of three big discoveries that have brought back the God hypothesis and challenged what's called scientific materialism. And those discoveries are first, that the universe had a beginning. Mm -hmm. Second, that from the beginning, the universe has been finely tuned in its physical laws and properties to allow for the, the possibility of life. And then thirdly, that since the beginning, there have been these massive infusions of information into the biosphere, making new forms of life possible. And I argue that when we look at those three discoveries together, we, when we take that ensemble of evidence together, only the worldview of theism can account for all three of the discoveries. A deist might be able to explain the evidence for the universe having a beginning and even being designed from the beginning. But a deist couldn't explain why there are big infusions of information and therefore evidence of design occurring after the beginning. Someone affirming a, some sort of space alien designer, as Francis Crick and Richard Dawkins have both uh, proposed, um, could maybe explain the evidence of design in biology after the beginning of the universe, though it's not a very good explanation for that for various mm -hmm. reasons. But anyone positing a designing intelligence that's imminent and within the cosmos cannot explain with that the origin of the universe itself and the laws of physics that apply to that designing entity. Um, and so as we look at sort of the possibilities, uh, materialism fails on all three counts. And pantheism is a form of materialism that makes God equivalent to nature. So what I do is I, I, I kind of take the, the inference structure that I've used in making the case for intelligent design up one level to examine the different metaphysical or worldview hypotheses. And I argue that only theism, the kind of, which affirms a God who is transcendent, uh, intelligent and active in the creation, as for example, Jews and Christians believe, uh, only Unless, that kind of a God can account for the ensemble ev evidence that we see in the natural world. And Steve, you're going to do this at the conference uh, here in Charlotte, October 11th and 12th. Go to ses.edu, friends, if you want to be a part of that. Right, Steve? You're going to you're going to be talking about the absolutely. God I'm going to yeah give, big, a, give a big plenary conference talk on the return of the God hypothesis. All right, that's wonderful. My guest has been Dr. Stephen Meyer. Wish we had more time, but Steve, we're going to have to do this again soon. Okay. Absolutely. This is a ton of fun. All right. That's my guest, Stephen Meyer, the book, Theistic Evolution. Steve, what's the website again? Get that website in there. What is it? Uh, uh, well, darwinsdoubt.com has information about all these things. The, the new book, the old book, and the Theistic Evolution book. Darwinsdoubt.com, friends. Check it out. All right. Remember, I'm in California this week, Arizona the next. See you there. If you benefit from this podcast, help others find it. Just go to iTunes or any other podcast service you might be using to listen and leave us a five-star rating on the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast with Dr. Frank Turek. It will take you less than five seconds. You can also help a lot by leaving us a positive review for others to see. This podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and many other audio content delivery apps. Thank you and God bless.